1: Reparations, conversation reparations, conversation reparations. We have been um, down for a while, but we are back. We are excited to be back on Black Talk Radio Network um, bringing you information about the reparations movement. My name is Jumoke Tayo. I serve as the Southeast Regional Representative of NCOBRA. Um, This show is... Brought to you by INCOBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. Uh, reason why we, we started this show with the full version of America a Check by Baritone Scholar, because we wanted to really, sh- we've been, that's been our theme music for the entire show. Uh, we started our show in June 2019. Uh, right before the National Encobra Convention. I'm not sure the exact date, but it was somewhere in mid-June. I know it was right before the Encobra Convention, which is the fourth weekend in June in 2019. And then we came to you the first and third Mondays at this time, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, every month going through October 2020 and then we um been down and now we're back. And as I was saying, that that theme song was produced by a young man who I had who have who have who I have the honor <laughs> of uh nurturing and um in this uh movement. I, I met him through uh the civil uh S C L C the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that um Brother Reverend Martin Luther King and others started in, in the Atlanta office and the national office, and and uh, we we began to um, build together. And and through that engagement and involvement, you know, uh, we went on leadership retreats and conventions and conferences and many many conversations. And one day after having not seen him for a while, we ran into each other on the, the the train, on the transit in Atlanta. And he said, I finally did it, I finally did it. And he, and he handed me a, a CD. I was like, oh, great, 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 congratulations. And we were actually getting off the bus, and so we were getting off the train. We didn't have time to have a full conversation, but just as, as I was walking, getting off the train, he said, and there's a reparations song on there. And I was like, great. And so um, the song that we've been playing at the beginning of our show and at the end of our show is uh, Brother Baritone Scholar. So I thought as, as a part of us coming back that we would um, have a conversation. Uh, Is Brother Baritone on the line? Um,
0: Not of yet Brother Jamoke. Not yet. Okay.
1: All right. Well, uh, hopefully he will join us on the line. You know, since we were have been doing our show, even in 2019 and 2020, we know that the uh, reparations movement has been picking up a lot of steam. There's so many things that have been happening. And, you know, a lot of this you're not going to find in the mainstream news uh, or, or you'll have to search for it in the mainstream news. Uh, but it's not so you, so we want to take this um, opportunity and we're, gonna, we're adding this as a new component to our conversation reparations show is to uh, give just uh, uh, some, uh, what do you call it, uh, headlines, right? Uh, some, um, just uh, brief snippets of some things that are happening in the uh, world of reparations, in the reparations movement right now. And so we're gonna add this as a as a component to our show. We'll take a few minutes uh, uh in the beginning of each show just to talk about some of the headlines and then of course, some of these uh issues or, or headlines we will probably unpack uh and give more time to uh in, in, in a future sh- in future shows
0: hey so know which um um oh, brother Jamal k okay, if you allow me because this is related to tonight. When you said news, it just triggered it in my mind. And I was going to ask you or um, the guest, uh, one of the guests, um, did you re- hear the article? I just read this today. You know how these Republicans in these different states are passing laws to ban the teaching of quote-unquote, race theory or anything having to do with racism. Uh, They're trying to ban that, you know, which would be in violation of the First Amendment. But some of these states have passed these laws. So Oklahoma um, actually signed um, one of those into law. And I read that one of the legislators who was on the Tulsa Commission, for, you know, this very thing that you're talking about tonight, he voted for that bill, and they kicked him off the commission, and I thought that was the right thing to do. How are you going to be on, on a commission dealing with, you know, this horrific history that's part of American history? It's just not black history, but American history, and then you're going to vote, you know, to not teach this history in school, which you already hadn't been doing anyway. But just wondering if you saw that. I thought that was interesting.
1: Uh, no, I hadn't seen that, but I will check that out. Yeah. And actually, um, that's a good segue, because tonight's show, the main feature of our show today we wanted to talk about is the fact that we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. And there's been several uh, reparations initiatives uh, since really from when it first Happened. I mean, right after it first happened, um, and then there's been other initiatives that Encobra has been involved in, and even the state of Oklahoma itself had a reparations commission, and there's been some lawsuits. And so we're going to be having a conversation with uh, Attorney Maynard Henry uh, to get more information about the current reparations uh, lawsuits and the current uh, reparations movement that's going on in Tulsa as we come up to the 100th anniversary of that uh, uh, massacre in, in in that important um, landmark in, in our story. So let's get into Yeah, but thanks for sharing that. I'll, I'll, I'll look more into that about the, the schools and, and the uh, person being um, kicked off the Tulsa Commission. I had not heard that. But what, I, what we would like to share with people is that uh, Minister Farrakhan was just recently paid by the City um London Police Department. $130,000 and plus his attorney fees because the um, City of London Police Department had um, blocked him from doing a speech on reparations, uh, making a presentation on reparations. I um, don't have the year. I think it was last year or the year before. And so he was victorious in that regard. And so we want to uh, salute the Nation of Islam and Minister Farrakhan and some some form of, of some justice, some um, minimum form of justice, and in the amount of $130,000 plus his attorney fees. And also in the news right now um, is the California Reparations Commission. So the governor uh, of California, there was a movement to pass a bill in the state of California, and it did pass to create a reparations commission, modeled very much after H.R. 40, but just doing it at the state level. And so part of that is to set up a commission. So the uh, California commission has just been set up. The people who are going to be on that commission were just recently named. And we, we are familiar with, um, NCOBRA is familiar with a couple of those uh, people who are going to be on that commission. We were actually hoping that a member of Cobra would, would would have been put on that commission, um, or uh, someone has, you know, we have been very active within COBRA. We have a representative out there in California, actually several, and so, but that didn't happen, but we still uh, have some people that we, we can uh, directly connect with uh, on that commission in, in California. And then San Francisco as a city just recently approved their what they're calling an african american ad reparations advisory committee, and so uh again we'll do a little bit more research and find out more about that and and what they uh and how that's moving along as well and again all, you know these local city and state initiatives are are helpful because they help to inform how things um may unfold at the federal level so we're we're getting some i guess you could say some um practice uh, in in seeing how effective we are being at the state and city level with some of these commissions and then i wanted to announce that okay before you you finish
0: we're having issues um with this platform it's about to turn uh, to shut us down in 10 seconds but please stay on the line Please stay on the line. I'm continuing to broadcast through Black Talk Radio. It still should have us connected on the board. If it disconnects us, I will call you. Okay, okay. It just went into the record. I apologize for that. Um, For those uh, that was listening through Blog Talk can listen through Black Talk Radio as I'm streaming it through there. All right. Sorry about that, Brother Jamoke. Okay. So,
1: should I continue?
0: (laughs) Um, Yes, if you would, um, y'all excuse us. This is our first show back, um, and it's been a while since I've been live streaming. But I may need to call your guests. So if you can text me, um, you know, the telephone number in case they're not able to get in, because I don't think they're going to be able to get in now that this board um, has shut down. It won't let anybody else in but us two.
1: Okay all right um okay well well let's do this why don't we play can we play the clip while we yeah. try to get some of this sorted out on the back end
0: yes we can all
1: right so uh we had a couple more news announcements but right now what we're going to do is we're going to listen to brother uh demario Solomon Simmons is being interviewed by a journalist from canada and we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, current situation um, with the reparations movement in in Tulsa, Greenwood, and even some of the, a little bit of the history of it as well. So if you play that, um, like, uh, the Mario Solomon Simmons, I think it's the first clip.
2: Now Tulsa itself is also a very significant site because the city was also historically the site of one of the bloodiest outbreaks of racist violence against black Americans. Now you have to go back to 1921 and despite segregation the city's Greenwood neighborhood was one of the largest and wealthiest black communities in the United States. In fact it was even known as Black Wall Street but a false allegation of assault made by a white woman against a black man ignited a riot and the community was burned to the ground. In roughly 24 hours, a white mob killed some 300 black Americans and destroyed property worth about $20 million in today's terms. Well, DeMario Solomon-Simmons is a civil rights lawyer representing the last living survivor of the Tulsa Massacre. He joins us right now. DeMario, thank you for joining us today.
3: Good morning, thank you for having me.
2: You know, um, I have to admit, I I just learned about Tulsa a couple of years ago uh, because I was looking for a podcast and this documentary came out. And to hear what happened is just shocking, it is disgusting. But in preparing for my interview, you know, my producer shared with me an earlier interview that you did in which you said that until university, you too were unaware of what happened in Tulsa and the community of Greenwood. Uh, What does that tell us about U.S. history?
3: Well, it tells us that uh, Black history has been eradicated uh, from U.S. history, and as you know, Black history is U.S. history. Black history is world history. And you're correct. You know, I went to high school. I um, mean, I went to middle school on Greenwood Avenue, and so when I got to the University of Oklahoma in 1997, sitting in an African-American studies class, and the professor is talking about this place called Green, uh, Black Wall Street, and all of the wonderful things and the businesses and the wealth, I raised my hand up and said, that's not correct. I'm from Greenwood, uh, and I've never heard this story, and uh, of course, I was wrong, and ever since that day, I've made it a mission to learn as much as I can about Greenwood, about how it was built, what actually transpired there, and also the massacre, and so it is an outstanding um, development that over the last couple of years, more people have known about Greenwood. Um, and so I'm excited. Even up there in Canada, you guys are learning about
2: it. Mm-hmm. Well, you, one of the more disturbing things that uh, that I came across when I was listening to this this uh, documentary about Greenwood was this idea that even for decades after the massacre, people could buy postcards of killed African Americans, burned property, and send that out from Tulsa as if it was something to be celebrated.
3: Absolutely, and this is the thing that we want to make sure people understand through, like the new organization that we've just founded, uh, which you you can learn more about at GreenwoodReparations.com. We want to tell the true story of what happened in the massacre and how the, the massacre has continued. We believe over the last 99 years, the incidents that you talked about the postcards, but also the racist policies and and practices of the city of Tulsa uh, has kept the black community in a perpetual state of degradation. And what I mean by that, I mean in the the immediate aftermath of the massacre, uh, laws were passed to prevent the reconstruction of Greenwood homes and businesses. The city of Tulsa allowed the largest uh, KKK Uh, facility to be built in the nation right next to Greenwood, which is ironic when we think think about what's going on right now in Tulsa with the uh, big uh, white supremacist rally called the Trump rally. And, you know, the city of Tulsa continued to oppress Greenwood by not paving roads, by not providing proper uh, plumbing and piping. So up until the 1950s, there was a significant amount of black people in Greenwood who did not have indoor plumbing in a modern city like Tulsa. And then in the 60s and the 70s, the city of Tulsa, discriminatory used urban renewal to displace and dispossess thousands of, of blacks, those descendants from Greenwood, of the remaining land and they plowed a highway, interstate 244, right through the heart of Greenwood, um, effectively killing any remnants of being able to rebuild from 1921, and this has continued to this day when we see large disparities in policing, health, employment, and wealth uh, accumulation. And all of this relates specifically and directly back to what happened in nineteen twenty one. Because it is the same mind state, the same anti black white supremacist mind
2: state. And let's underline the fact again. Nineteen twenty one, segregation very much alive in the United States, and yet despite those challenges, here you have this thriving African American community in Greenwood where there was African African American doctors, teachers, lawyers, business owners, very successful business owners, all burned down within a matter of twenty four yes. hours, hundreds of people massacred by white supremacists yes. in a matter of twenty four Four hours, and here you are now representing Leslie Benningfield Randall, if I have that correct, and that is the last living survivor of the Tulsa massacre. What can you tell us about your client?
3: Absolutely. Well, she's the I want to say she's the last known living survivor that lives in Tulsa. We do know of one other survivor. Um, that does not live in Tulsa, um, but she's the last known living survivor that lives in Tulsa. And this, this is why I was so excited to come and speak with you today, because one of the aspects of our project at GreenwoodReparations.com is to find any other survivors. So we know that people from Greenwood were dispersed as refugees throughout the nation, and some people even maybe went into Canada. So if you're any of the Canadian, if you have a descendant, if you believe you have a descendant, please connect with us at GreenwoodReparations.com. But about Mother Randall, she is a magnificent woman, 105 years old. I spoke with her just yesterday, and she told me that, you know, she encouraged me to continue to fight for justice, and she always makes it known to me and anyone that this is, this is not about her. This is about the community that was lost because even though she's still dealing with the trauma, I mean, she'll tell you, she will tell you that she still uh, remembers hearing the, 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 the gunshots and the screams. She can still remember uh, hear, uh, seeing buildings burning and she remembers running for her life as her grandmother's home was being burned to the ground. She remembers the smell of, of ashes and, 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 and smoke and of burning flesh as she ran tried to run to safety. She remembers most of all the bodies that she saw stacked up in the streets. And she talks about how the city of Tulsa and those uh, powerful white business and uh, uh, political leaders had a duty to stop what happened, and they did not do it, but they should have done something to help her and her family and her community rebuild, and they have not done anything to this point, and so I'm so excited to to represent her and others as we try to move forward and tr- get reparations before the 100-year a commemoration, And that's why I ask for any of your audience and goodwill to connect with us at GreenwoodReparations.com. Help us find other survivors. Help us amplify this message because we must have justice for Greenwood.
0: Okay, we're back. Bro. Jamal, okay, I'm going to try to get the guest on the line. It should be calling him now. You were able to hear that? Yes,
4: yes, sir.
2: Please leave your message for seven zero three.
0: Okay, Brother Jamoke, I'll try to get in touch with him while you continue with the show. But that was the first clip just played.
1: Yes, uh, thank you. So, yes, Brother um, DeMario Solomon Simmons has emerged as one of the main leaders of the fight for for reparations in in Tulsa. Um, As a matter of fact, there will be a hearing, um, excuse me, on Wednesday, uh, this Wednesday on Malcolm X Earth Day in Congress on May 19th, on Wednesday, with three of the survivors, I think maybe the only three survivors that, that we know of at this point, and they will be testifying as well as the Mario, as well as others, uh, in terms of reparations and some type of compensation for, for them in and uh, their descendants, and, and, and people still there in Greenwood as well. And so that so it's 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 in the news. It's just interesting how something about I, I don't know how to say this or so people will understand, but I don't wanna um but there's something that's really happening right now in the world where where things are coming to light and, and coming um coming yeah, coming to light, I guess is the best way to say it. I, I remember some years ago one of my spiritual teachers talked about this phase that we were coming that was happening. She talked about it astrologically in terms of more light um, coming onto the earth, but she also talked about it um, um, politically and metaphysically about how things would be coming to light. And so uh, that's been another good segue for one of the. Um, well, let me two things. One is that just uh, about uh, I think maybe a month or two ago. They discovered some um, bodies in Tulsa in a grave, in, a, in an unmarked grave, like I guess a, ma- a mass uh, burial site for some of the um, victims of the Tulsa massacre. And this just happened literally a um, few months ago uh, or maybe last month in April. And then the, and interesting how and I hadn't really thought about the, the fact that both of these incidences happened in the month of May, but we're also coming up now on the 36th um, anniversary uh, of when well, actually just passed because I think it, it was March 13th of the uh, MOVE bombing of uh, when Philadelphia Police Department uh, uh, went to war with the MOVE organization and dropped a bomb on. On their house and members inside, as uh, adults and children were um, were killed and burned to death. And so, so just a few weeks ago, it was discovered. It came out in the news that two of the children's bodies that were were recovered from the the um, from the scene were then used in at, at the University of Pennsylvania for archeological and, and, and anthropological research. Um, and, and this is definitely not something that would have been in accordance or not in accordance with the move family beliefs and values. Then it came out uh, 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 shortly after that, some of the remains from the children, because they were to- of the children, they were told that, you know the house was burned so bad there were no remains at the time that it happened. So now it comes out that some of the bodies of the some of the remains of the children who who were burned in that house in Move the Move headquarters were um, were cremated back in 2017. And again, this is all very shocking news to to the, to the world and to the Move family specifically. Then I just, then most recently they're saying that, no, they found a box of remains. And again, when I say recently, I'm talking about it now within the last week um, or a few days now, they're saying that the, they, the the remains were not cremated, but that they found the remains. And and now they're um, figuring out exactly what they, how they're going to deal with that and uh, appropriately return them to the move family. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, you know there has been already an ongoing investigation into uh, the, the Moore family um, bombing from 1985.
0: Oh. Brother Jamoke, okay.
1: yeah, yeah, that that was a terrible story.
0: Uh, sorry to just break in, but I have made contact with the guest. Uh, he wants us to go ahead and and call him and connect him. So I'm gonna do that now. Okay.
1: Okay. Yes, so we we apologize for the technical challenges that we're having as we uh, work to bring this information. So, yes.
3: Hello? Yes,
1: Baritone Scholar? Yes, sir. All right, great, 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 great. Just hold on. Let me um, finish up here, and then we'll bring you into the conversation, okay?
4: Okay. Yeah, my bad, man. I meant to uh, call in. I had seen it, but it's anyway. Yeah, I'm
1: ready. All right. Okay. So, so yeah, and and and, and in terms of this, the, the, right now there's conversations around um, giving a financial settlement to the Moom family for for the their loss and and um, and and really harassment by the police. And death and murder by the police department, and and one of the things that I understand from an um, activist I just spoke with earlier today, Sister Filay Chionazo, who's a leading um, national international activist who lives who happens to live in Philadelphia, fill me in on some more of the details. I saw some of this information, but she filled me in on more of the details. was saying that the MOVE family is saying that they don't want the money and they don't want the um, apologies from from the city. They just what, – what they do want is, is for Mumia to be immediately re- released, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is a journalist who has um, been a supporter in writing positive stories around the Moo family, uh, actually an award-winning journalist, a president of the National Association of Black Journalists, Philadelphia chapter, and so um, who has had some health challenges recently by understand he's doing better now. And so we're thankful for that, and we uh, hope that that, will, that wish will be honored, that the family is saying that, you know, if you want to make amends to us, one of the ways you can do that is to release Mumia Abu-Jamal immediately. And so we'll be following the, all of the new stories around the Mood family, and um, what's unfolding there in Philadelphia. And then the last uh, story I wanted to share was the fact that there is a woman, a European-American woman who is 72 years old. Uh, her name is Rochelle Zola, and she has decided to take it, among, to take it on to do a hunger fast for H.R. 40. She said she's going to fast until Congress passes h r forty and so we will be we will be following following her story as well yes sir you trying to get in brother bearton okay so again we i apologize for the these these uh technical challenges we have in um i know so things may seem a little disjointed, but we really are uh, endeavoring to continue to bring you a very uh, informative show, what's going on in the reparations movement. And so we have Brother Baritone Scholar on now, and this is a young man who I said at the top of the show, we've been playing his song uh, every episode at the opening of the show and the closing of the show for over a year, and we played the full version of the song today. Usually we play a part of the song, Brother Baritone, but we played the full-length version of the of the song today. And just wanted to um, welcome you and thank you for making a song about the reparations movement and and, and um, the work that you've done in the community and the work that we've done together. So why don't you share a little bit about the, uh, the inspiration for that song, brother? I was going to say songs with an S, man, because i made more than one song about uh, yes, the movement. Yes, sir. Yes, you have made more than one song about the movement. Yes, sir.
4: That song, you know, uh, honestly, it came from uh, like like I don't want to say verbatim, but it came from the conversations, you know, that 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 we had, that me and you had, uh, from trips when we go on trips and just talking and building and uh, talking about different aspects of the movement. From uh, you know, from seminars, from workshops, from from just you know a lot of things I've learned from Mama and Jerry, from Barbara Hannibal. Uh, but more specifically from our direct conversations, me and you, and, um, I just wanted to, cause a lot of the things I, I, I talk about, a lot of the points I make, they're, they're coming from, you know, conversations that me and you had or, or points that you made that really, uh, had a profound impact on me. And I wanted to put that in the song and I wanted to, you know, uh, create it in a way to where it would resonate with uh, people who weren't necessarily uh, aware of the reparations movement and everything that has happened and, and all the work that's being done. So I wanted to kind of put it in a, you know, in a format that, that we could listen to and maybe dance to, you know, and maybe, uh, you know, just ride out listening to it in your car and just put it in a way where it wasn't like someone was preaching at you or, like you were listening to a speech or something like that. And I didn't want to go over anybody's head. So, uh, you know, just try to break it down and, 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 you know, take the whole message and everything I learned and put it in a way to where anybody could understand it. So where a little kid could, could, you know, try to understand it. And I tried to do it. I don't know if I was successful but that's what I was trying to do with that song. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, you know, it's
1: um, interesting. I, um, Sometimes I hear, I I see these debates sometimes on social media around whether um, artists and entertainers are leaders or not, and, you know, some people take the position that they are not Mm -hmm. or or don't necessarily should speak for our people, and then, you know, other people um, will disagree with that. And I know even one of the conversations I had, you kind of opened my eyes to the fact that. You know, if we're looking at the definition of leadership, which is people who have, who influence the actions of others, who get people to do things right. or not do things, then they're, they're right. we have to um, and have to acknowledge that they are leaders. You know, now, you know, where they, you know, where some, some artists may be leading, I mean, you know, where as um, Common might be taking people one place or John Legend might be taking people somewhere else and then. Some some other artists maybe uh, taking people somewhere else, <laughs> but they definitely have an uh, influence. They definitely have followers. They definitely uh, influence. So, what's what's your what's your take on that? Well, I kind of shared yeah, it already, but I'll just let you embellish he's on it. <laughs> know hey,
4: you, you know my take. You know Don't yeah. nobody else know my
1: take. Jamoke, okay. you know. Well, we're doing this for to the to listening good. audience. It's,
4: not
1: just
4: a personal know, conversation know, I, with you and i i know because <laughs> we done we don't talked about this very passionately you know and you know i my 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 view is is still the same uh rappers are the new leaders you know because you know like like what you were saying you know in the aforementioned that it you know some some artists you know they may lead you this way some may lead you that way but you know uh it doesn't take away where they're leading you to doesn't, uh, uh, you know, change the fact that they're leaders or, or like we were saying, influencers, you know what I'm saying? Uh, people with influence. Uh, so if you want to call them influences, cool, but leaders, you know, and, and, and my whole thing with that was that, uh, you know, we had conversations about trying to, you know, indoctrinate some of the, some of the, uh, the rappers, you know, like Lil Wayne and some of the more popular uh, artists to kind of speak on reparations or mention it. Because, you know, Tupac mentioned it, and uh, he was very influential. uh, But rappers are leaders, you know, and I I think it's it's partly our responsibility to try and educate them or try and bring them in and uh, let them know uh, as a community, what, what they should be talking about, you know. Uh, I don't think it's our full responsibility artists, you know, write about, rap about, sing about, whatever they want to. That's their poetic license. But uh, to some extent, I, I do believe they have an obligation to the community that they came from. Um, and I, I just think that responsibility goes both ways. But for me, I take I it personally, and I always try and make music to, to speak on these issues, because a lot of most artists in hip-hop don't, you know, and, um, and hip-hop is the voice of our community, you know, so, uh, because even, you know, even with the Black Lives Matter, you know, all of this happening, it was a lot of rappers that that wouldn't normally talk about these issues, started talking about, I don't know if it was trendy or not, but, you know, it happened, so it is possible uh, to, to, you know, to get some of these people to, to speak on these issues, and I think we'll have a profound effect you know not just on you know our community but white people too because white people buy the majority of hip-hop records you know don't, don't quote me on this but I was uh you know I thought you know from my research that you know uh white youth bought anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of all hip-hop records albums streams and whatnot so uh it wouldn't just affect our community, but it would affect, you know, the the, the younger white kids who, who are more open-minded than their parents and grandparents. And, um, you know, maybe we would have some type of change, you know, if
1: that did happen. So, Well, let, let's do this. Um, two things. I think one is uh, um, sort of a follow-up on what you said. You kind of touched on it, but I want to bring it out a little bit more. But also, let, I, I, what I was thinking about actually in, in listening to our conversation, I was thinking about this. This actually topic could deserve a whole show. So we're we so let's we'll plan to do a whole show around uh, hip hop and reparations, or the role of artists in the reparations movement, or something along those lines. So the question I wanted to ask you, though, is to, to also think about which is another thing that I've seen kind of debated, which is are should do. Do hip hop artists or artists and entertainers in general have a responsibility to speak to the problems and challenges or uh, in our community? What's your take on that? Personally, I, you
4: know, I, I think they do, uh, but that's you know that's that's a kind of loaded question right there. Uh, <laughs> I think just just in the you know and, and you know from our experience here in this country and uh just going back and thinking about uh the movement you know back in the day where you had uh, Paul Robinson and you had uh, a lot of the even Dick Gregory you know who at the time was the highest uh paid uh black comedian uh at one point and he was out you know speaking out on these issues uh dealing with our community uh and and things things uh when 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 I wanna say the most popular but the most uh you know I guess famous or the most the the, the, the biggest influences when they speak out on these issues is different than than me per se, than than me speaking out on it, you know, because they have a platform listening to them and just our history of it, like that's our history. The top entertainers, uh, the top artists, the top actors have always you know felt like they had a responsibility, not all of them, but a lot of them, like Jim Brown, you know, one of the best football players ever felt like he he had a responsibility to speak out on these issues and I think uh you know I don't feel like they have to, you know, I don't think it's a you know a prerequisite or anything, but I think uh if you you can't say that, you know, you want our community to be better or or you're trying to uplift the community or you're trying to, you know, uh, you want our our people to be in a better position, whether it's financially, spiritually, whatever, you can't say these things and then not, uh, you know, actually do anything or uh, use your platform to to try and advocate, you know, for our community. But, I mean, you know, because it's it's some rappers like – That really just you know don't really care about these issues at all and and they will never speak Mm -hmm. on and i'm not going to sit up here and say you know uh they're wrong for not for not doing it because i don't know how they were raised i don't know you know what their value system is what they view as important or even if they have said anything about the community they may not even care but just as a black man you know in this country uh and, you know, knowing, you know, what our people went through, what our ancestors went through, where all of these people that you know, that, that have uh fought on our behalf and have on our behalf so that we can be in a better position. I I personally feel like, yeah, we do have a responsibility to speak out on these issues on our platform, like LeBron James,
1: um, Grady James,
4: yeah. Um but
1: you know, yeah. I was thinking about LeBron James. You went way back to Jim Brown. <laughs> but uh yeah. But uh and even and even Beyonce and so many others, Alicia Keys and so many others. But you know, um one of the things I was thinking also is that um I, I I went to the museum um in in um Mississippi where um, there's a, a very very nice museum for BB uh, King, and uh, one of the things that he, one of the um, things that he he said in in the, he's quoted as saying in his museum, was that he he consciously chose not to speak publicly about those um, about you know civil rights and different issues that was going on during his during his time, but that he put money into it. And he felt like that was his yeah. way of giving back by not necessarily challenging the system publicly, which you know probably a lot of like you just mentioned hip hop, a lot of his uh, fan base, the blues is is you know now European American as well. So maybe he felt one one strategy was to you know make the money, but then um, not necessarily speak about it publicly. Not now there was. This, he did say that 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 he decided to do that, put money, which is another way you know that artists and so you know can support you know the movement as well. But, you know uh, even if they don't speak publicly, they could put some money into these things behind the scenes. He
4: said the same thing. He said, "How can I cannot help the poor from one of them? So I got rich and gave back to me. That's the win-win, you know." And who uh, said that? that that's Jay Z but yeah, we, oh, need, we need money. We need money. We definitely need money. So I think that's just as important as, as any other aspect of, you know, what we're trying to do. Cause you know, if we don't have money, uh, you know, <laughs> it's going to be hard to do anything. So.
1: All right. Well, we appreciate your time brother and, and sharing. And like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll set up a show in the next few months where we'll, We'll do a whole show on this topic and bring in some other people and uh, play some, some some clips from some other artists and stuff, talking about this topic as well. All right. Uh, brother um, brother Scotty, do we have uh, Maynard on the line?
0: Um, no, unable to reach him. Keeps going to voicemail.
1: Okay. Yeah, maybe he's not recognizing your number. I probably should have called him or texted myself. Okay, um, yeah, well, uh, I'll give you some closing remarks, brother. We were in, working on interviewing another brother. We're having trouble getting him on the call. So you want to give out some closing um, thoughts on how people can let people know what, what you're doing now in the movement and how people can connect with you on social media. Brother are you talking right? to today? Yeah, sure. I'm talking to you. You can give us some closing remarks and and what and and how people you know what you're doing and how people can connect with you on social media.
4: Okay, uh, well I'm currently uh, curating shows right now for local artists and just providing a platform uh, for for artists that you know that otherwise probably wouldn't exist in some of these places you know where we do these shows at. So uh, you can reach me at open mic ATL on Instagram, really on, on across all platforms. One word, open mic ATL. Uh I've been looking, trying to get into doing more uh, uh, conscious, uh, I hate to say the word conscious, but uh, more revolutionary type shows. So anybody interested in, you know, putting something together, you know, please reach out to me at open mic ATL across all platforms. And uh, I appreciate you, Jamoke, uh, for having me on, and uh, I look forward to the next time. And know, uh, hopefully I have more time, you know, to speak my piece. But uh, I appreciate you inviting me out, and uh, we got to do it again. So thank you.
1: Thank you, brother Baritone Connor. All right, well let's do this. Let's play. Um, let's play the clip, uh, the second clip, which is a clip of from one of the. The uh, One of the survivors, uh, I don't think this, I think this clip was made about maybe 10 years, in, this interview was done maybe about 10 years ago, uh, one of the survivors, and, and then we'll just kind of round out the show. Maybe don't play the whole clip, I think it's like nine minutes, but maybe play about five, six minutes in, or I can let you know where to cut it off.
0: Um, yeah you can let me know when to cut it off we still have we still have time to play the nine minutes if if you like um but just want to let the listeners know um in some portions of the clip, she's speaking kind of low, so you may need to turn your volume up and I may be able to boost it on my end but I do have that clip and I'm ready to go if you want me to stop it early just let me know.
1: Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I don't want We're going to yeah, yeah. interview
5: first Mrs. Essie Lee Johnson Beck, age 85. And uh, Mrs. Beck, I want you to just uh, talk to, to Kevin, talk to me, uh, just tell us what it was like to live in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921 when an elevated incident, a seemingly insignificant incident, could lead to a riot that eventually would claim over 300 deaths. Our commission can do that. Right now we can document at least 300 deaths. Uh, It could demolish 35 blocks, a 35-block area from arches to pine, destroying millions of dollars worth of property. Uh, This was an area so elite, it was called the Black Wall Street. Booker T. Washington called it that. Uh, What was it like living in in Tulsa, Oklahoma at that time? And tell us especially what happened the day of that riot.
6: Well, being a little girl, it was, uh, I was frightened, I was scared, and uh, we had to get out of the way. And there were airplanes flying in the sky that uh, seemed to have been dropping something down to the houses and setting them on fire. And, of course, we, had to run to try to stay out of their way and because we didn't want to get burned and so we just uh, kept running and uh, we were trying to get to an area where the Golden Gate Park was and go out there and hide and we finally made it out there. My mother and uh, about uh, two or three of my sisters and brothers were ducking and dodging and running to get to the Golden Gate Park. That's what uh, the park was called at that time. And we finally made it out there. And uh, when the planes would fly over, we would see them dropping something to the rooftops of the different houses and setting them on fire. And of course we were crying and running and doing things like that. And uh, we finally got out of their way and found somewhere to hide. Do you
5: remember what you were doing? Uh, Was it uh, night when it happened? Some people said they started to flee in the middle of the night. Others said it was early the next morning.
6: well, Well, it was as far as I know, it was at night when they started. But uh, we, would, uh, we didn't get out of our house until early the next morning. And they would tell us to stay away from the windows because they were shooting in the windows and things like that. And uh, we would run and try to survive. Did,
5: did you uh, see anyone get shot? Some survivors had relatives shot dead
6: right by them. No. You didn't see anyone? No, I'm so thankful that I oh, didn't I not experience anything like that. But uh, we saw the one or two planes flying over and it looked like they would drop something from the plane mm-hmm. to the roof of a house. And we saw the houses that were burning, there was
5: smoke and things like that. Now, where did you, uh, you went straight to one of these shelters, convention hall, and, and the park. What, what did you all do? Some people slept, they said slept out of the open that night. Did somebody come and get you? Uh, no, we ran. You ran to Golden we ran, Gate Park? Run, we, we ran in groups. Uh-huh. And uh, we'd hide behind uh, trees
6: and things like that. Uh-huh. And uh, we finally made it out to the Golden Gate Park. That's what it was called at that time. Did
5: somebody, some of the troops, you mentioned any of the troops, the soldiers?
6: The the soldiers were on their way, Uh but I don't remember seeing them. Uh When you, um, your house was burned, when you
5: first came back, when did you see where your house used to be? How did you feel? Did you lose? I've heard people say what hurts them the most—they like a prom dress that burned up, or their dolls. Or, right. Yeah, so what? What did it feel like to be homeless?
6: It was uh, awful. And uh, we uh, we went to the Golden Gate Park, and we was supposed to stay out there, but. Uh, It seemed like where they had places to stay were filled up by the time my my family and I got around to it. So uh, we seemed like we walked back to the basement of somebody's church. I don't remember what church it might have been. And stayed there that night. But my mother was able to keep... the five children together, and, uh, my father was out, uh, helping them, and I don't know what he was doing, but, uh, he was supposed to, and helping to keep us, keep them from shooting us, and I didn't see any shooting or anything like that, but I did see houses burning, and, uh, we saw them trying to set uh, one of the churches on fire, and it wouldn't burn. I don't remember what church it was. But uh, we survived, and it seemed like we spent our first night in a school, one of the schools. And uh, we, the family, my mother and I, sister and brother, but uh, my father was out uh, on the streets helping them to rescue the rest of them. And that's about all I remember. All right.
5: Would you tell me how you feel about this commission? Do you think we're doing the right thing trying to set the record straight? And how would you feel about reparations? Do you think somebody ought to pay for
6: so I, awesome. I sure do. I think we should be, uh, and I had thought that they were going to, uh, give us money to start out all over again. But if they gave any, I didn't hear about
5: it. I understand they did put up some tents where... Yes. Did we, you all stay in a tent? We
6: lived in a tent. Oh, what, what was that like,
5: living in a tent during the winter?
6: It was something else. <laughs> but, uh, that's all we had to depend on.
1: So we, we okay. That's it. good. Did
5: you have a
1: floor in your tent? Some people said that dad is, said I, you're not going
5: to be on this dirt, brother Scott. No, we dirt. we had yeah.
1: dirt. We had- we can close that clip out. Yeah. So you've been um, listening to a clip of Mama Essie, who was one of the survivors. And you have to imagine now that, like I mentioned, there will be three survivors who will be speaking in Congress on. Wednesday, uh, this is 100 years ago, so all of them were very small children, five, six, seven years old, those who are still um, surviving. I think even she, who was being interviewed, I think she was like five, she said. Um, so anyway, one of the things I think that's also important, you know, is just to lift up just how prosperous Tulsa was. And, and we're talking about 600 businesses, we're talking about 30 grocery stores, movie theaters, we're talking about there was the airport where some of the members, some of the members of the community owned their own private jets. We're, we're, we're talking about a very, very prosperous community in 1921. Um, you know, and I understand that actually the white people called themselves demeaning it by calling it "Little Africa," and that the people thought that was actually a compliment. So, you know, how we are—that's so beautiful. But um, so there has been. Trying to so really, unfortunately, we weren't able to get our, our guests on, but because I, I really wanted them to give a lot more detail of this. But I know that uh, at one point that there was, um, and Cobra had put together a a reparations uh, litigation um, committee, and this was a very powerful uh, assembly of, of of people. We had people like Charles Ogletree, who was a dean of law at Harvard. And, we had uh, Johnny Cochran was on there. We had uh, people who were part of the Black Farmers lawsuit that was successful that was on this panel. We had uh, Cobra's own, Ijo Iaturo, was on this litigation committee. And they, they started out by looking at um, putting in federal legislation, and they felt like, I mean, excuse me, a federal lawsuit, and they felt like that would be um, more difficult because of certain reasons, because of standing and, and certain reasons. So they decided to look at, at at a local initiative, or and and the one that they came up with was the Tulsa massacre, and again this was in um, I want to say the early 2000s when this was happening, and so they um, began to work on that, and but well, they were not successful with that lawsuit, and but well, what I what did come out of that was that the Oklahoma um, created a commission to uh, look at some type of compensation for uh, Greenwood and for the survivors. And the commission, the state commission actually said, yes, they should be compensated, but they never did compensate them. They never did the the, the, the state uh, legislature of Oklahoma never did put money into the funds to, to compensate them. And but they, it's on commission findings say, yes, we should compass, they should be compensated uh reparations. And then there's been um, uh, another more recent lawsuit that's the one that um, Brother Demario, Southern Descendants, is working with along with Maynard Henry, who's also been active within Cobra over the years, as well as Idrew I think, has been somewhat involved with this lawsuit as well. One of the things that people were, were. Um, Bringing up one of the things that's being challenged is the fact that the city of Tulsa was given like $30 million or $30 million was raised for um, these activities, different activities that are being planned for the 100th anniversary. And some people are saying, look, these survivors still haven't gotten anything. So at least some of that $30 million, instead of just going into um, ribbon cutting programs and museums and things like that, which are important. And some of, it still, some of it could go to direct payments to some of these survivors. So uh, a lot. And, and I guess one of the things I also wanted to bring out is that I know over the years, I used to always hear that the first bomb that was dropped on our community wasn't the bomb that was dropped, which I mentioned, the, the that was dropped on the MOVE headquarters in 1985, but was in Tulsa. But I never really heard anything that really corroborated that. I, you know, I've watched different documentaries and anything, and then it wasn't until I heard this particular uh, survivor actually talk about the airplanes dropping um, incendiary devices um, that, that were ca- that were causing the um, fires and burning the, burning the community down that, that were being dropped from airplanes. So that is not a Actually, honestly, I, I wasn't sure if that was 100% true, you know, one of those kind of things that I thought was like, you know, what they call urban myth, or urban legend, what have you. But um, actually, it is true, it is actually factually true that um, uh, our community was, was bombed airily um, in, in the Greenwood community. So I guess we will have to consider doing some follow-up to this. Um, We'll wait till after all of the activities and everything um, happen in Tulsa and then we can um, look at um, bringing you some more information about the, the status of the reparations lawsuit and the reparations movement in Tulsa. And the church that she mentioned, not 100% positive, but I understand one of the um, few places that survived was the basement of burning AME Church, and the current pastor of that church has also been a very strong advocate for reparations. He, I understand, has a regular vigil for reparations on a weekly basis, and and has been a very also outspoken um, spokesperson. And he is the, the, the current minister of that church, and how that church played a vital role um, before in the community, before the, the riot, during and after the riot. riot um, uh, in the earlier clip I played Solomon, um, DeMario Solomon, and was mentioned how there was no, um, how the infrastructure was denied for his city, the infrastructure was denied um, to the the city of Tulsa, that denied infrastructure development to um, Greenwood. And and so one of the stories I, I heard is that Vernon Church, they put up their own, have, it was still there today, this of um, Fixture, uh, a lighted sign that and that they that they um, I guess figured out how to use the, le- come up, the electricity themselves to light up the street so that people could um, walk down that particular street that the church was on at night because the, the city didn't provide the um, street light service so so much to unpack so much to talk about but this is definitely um, a story that is important in our story, uh, in our journey here as people of African descent and the Greenwood uh, Massacre, as well as the Mood family. And so we're going to continue to uh, share with you what's going on and give you updates as to the progress with both of these stories and other stories in the reparations movement. So you've been listening to Conversation Reparations, Conversation Reparations, Conversation Reparations, brought to you by INCOBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks to Reparations in America. You can get in touch with us at, by email at reparationsj at gmail.com. That's reparations with S-J at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, incobraonline.org, in cobraonline.org We invite you to our national convention, which is coming up uh, June 25th through the 27th, uh, we will we have uh, honored to have Sheila Jackson Lee, who's been leading the fight for HR with HR 40, as well as Judge Mathis, as well as many other leading voices in the reparations movement, letting you know what our upcoming, um, what we have been doing, and what we will continue to do to move this um, conversation forward. And We uh, met with great success in having HR 40 for the first time in history in 30. Plus years actually come out of committee, be voted out of committee successfully um, due to the work of Encobra and many other organizations as well, and the leadership of Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. And so we're looking forward to it coming to the floor of Congress for a vote. Um, at last count, we had about 170 plus co sponsors on the bill already. You only need 212 for it to pass. So we will be following um, HR 40 as well. And also uh, coming up in June, we'll be giving you more uh, information about our national convention. You can go to Eventbrite, national, excuse me, COBRA convention on, at eventbrite.com and register for our convention. So again, you've been listening to Conversation Reparations.
4: that america bounce the check and know it ain't all about the dough but my people still pull reparations Do so just give me what you owe no we won't renounce the debt america bounce the check and know it ain't all about the dough but my people still pull reparations Do so just give me what you owe capitalists are the enemy but we get treated like the villain when prison is homicide